Father, it's a sweet thing to be your people, to by your grace be drawn to you and therefore able to sing and know the lyrics that we just sung and saw there. You, our vision. As we sung earlier, you, the holy God that lives and interacts with us in so many ways. Lord, that is all by your grace, and it is a privilege. Thank you. A sweet thing. And now we come to you knowing that you are kind and you love to draw near to us as we draw near to you. And so we ask you for more, that you would in this moment meet us and teach us and grow us up. I am thankful, Lord. Thankful for what you have done and for the certainty that you are not done, that you will do more. We give this morning to you now, this time, this moment. Pray you do with it good for your people and that you'd honor your name. Thank you. Amen. Over the past month, as we've been looking at the opening to the book of 1 Peter, we have had opportunity to think about the great salvation that God has brought to us in Jesus. We've seen how God planned it for us from before the beginning of time, and how then he acted to save us in Christ. We have been saved, and then is at work all the day, every day, saving us, making us new, renewing us. And then in particular, we saw how he is going to save us one day, the great day at the end, when Christ returns and he brings to us the living hope that we saw, the, the heavenly inheritance that is kept for us now and we're kept for it, but it's coming on that day when he comes. It is a great salvation, the greatest story ever told the reason for all of creation and for all of history. This story is the reason for all of the creation and for all of history. God bringing glory to himself as he saves a people back into his presence. And it's our story. We're living it out now. We're living right in the middle of it. We are living the dream. This is what we've been looking at through the first 12 verses of 1 Peter 1. We are so very fortunate. And now with all of that laid out for us now at the very beginning, at verse 13, we take a turn. As is always the case in life, ideas have consequences. And this idea, this plan of God that then he has worked out, it has consequences. It, it has ramifications for us now. It has a life walk attached to it. That fits, that is appropriate for us, who are God's saved ones, who are objects of all of this amazing grace. And Peter's now going to begin to lay out that life for us, beginning in verse 13. And really, that's it. one way of dividing the book is to say that you've got 1 through 12, and then you have the rest, all that follows from it. There are other ways to divide it, but that's, that's one important way. Because this, this morning in verse 13, we see the very first command of the book. Two of them, in fact, in verses 13 to 16. Many more follow, but we have two this morning, one about hope and one about holiness. And it is no accident that those are the first two commands. Commands about hope 
and holiness. Start off what then follows. There are many more commands and implied commands to follow. All of them are natural extensions of or natural conclusions drawn from the fact that we are God's saved ones. But we start here with hope and holiness. Commands. Now and coming, which we have to be really, really clear about. These are commands that come from, that are ramifications of the fact that we are Christians. They are not things we do to become Christians. It's always important to get that straight because it's easy to read many commands in the Bible and, and to read things like book, the book of 1 Peter and kind of begin to think like, these are the things that I do to become pleasing to God when in fact he has made clear the salvation has come. Christian, God saved you by grace, by trusting in the cross and Jesus' death alone, period. And then follow commands about the life that's fitting, the life that's appropriate. So it's, it's important to get that straight as we're right here on this cusp of turning now to talk about commands, hope and commands for holiness. As God's saved ones, we do these things. They are normal for us. They are appropriate for us, not to become Christians, but because we are. That's what we're going to be looking at. We'll begin this morning in verses 13 to 16. Let me read the passage, and then we'll draw out two observations based on the two commands. 1 Peter 1, beginning in verse 13. Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct, since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. 1 Peter 1. Two observations, here's the first. Christians are to be deliberate in setting our hope on heaven. Christians are to be deliberate in setting our hope on heaven. Verse 13 is an important and very helpful verse. And in fact, it's one of my favorite verses in all the Bible. It, it sits in a, a really helpful spot and, as I said, kind of leads into everything that follows. It's no accident that this is first. Given this great salvation that God has called us to, elected us to, therefore, something follows something about what we do with our insides, specifically with our hearts and minds first. You're Christians, therefore, preparing your minds for action, he says. And that's a very colorful phrase. You probably have a footnote that, that explains what it literally says. Literally, it's girding up the loins of your mind. In that day, people, men included, often wore very long robes, past the knees, even down to the ankles, long and heavy robes. And those robes would have been a real nuisance if you're going to try to do any real work, like run or work in a field or lift something, fight, wrestle. And so you had to clear your legs if you were going to move. 
So men would take their robes and they would gather them up in a particular way and wrap them into their belt. They would gird up their loins. Everybody did this and it was so common that the phrase itself almost became slang for get ready to go to work. Kind of like we might say buckle up or roll up your sleeves. That phrase was almost a slang for there's work to be done. And in our case, it's not physical work, it's mental, it's spiritual work. So, buckling up your mind, rolling up the sleeves of your mind, having done that, and the grammar indicates, kind of like the, the word picture itself indicates, that that's something that you do such that then it's done and you're ready. Unless, of course, you don't do it and you aren't. I wonder how many Christians consistently fail in their attempts to walk with God and trust him and obey him because they miss this point right here. Or you might say, I wonder how many Christians miss the entire rest of the book of 1 Peter because they miss phrase 1 from verse 13. It starts somewhere. It starts right here. There is work to be done, and I think, I wonder, how many of us never expect there to be an inner battle that actually requires some heart, some mind work, some taking captive of thoughts and telling those thoughts when they pop up, no, that's not true. This is. Or when the feeling arises and you say, nope, I, I know, self, I know that feels totally natural, but how do you know that's not the natural you that feels that way? It's really common. Yeah, uh-huh. Why is that? You get to take that captive, to, to grab these things and bring them back, to kind of grab yourself and take hold of yourself, that is work. It's difficult. Do you expect that? Do you buckle up your mind and get ready? Such that, next phrase, and being sober-minded, which is the state you're left in, once you've buckled up your mind and rolled up your sleeves, you're now continually sober-minded. You're thinking straight. To be sober-minded is not just to be serious or in some way somber or frowning all the time. You know, far from it. I hope that we are people who understand delight and joy in all of its expressions. I hope that we laugh freely. Sober is not somber. Different. Sober is about thinking straight, being able to discern the truth without being under the clouding influence of something else. Not being, what we might say, mentally drunk. Not having a mind that's intoxicated or filled with or, or influenced by, carried away by all manner of distraction of error or frivolity or, or deceit, such that we just kind of drift along. You can get mentally intoxicated on just anything in life. Never mind sinful things, good things in life. Careers and families and hobbies relationships of all sorts, sports. And it's helpful, I think, to notice right here that 
that this is not yet the main command. There is some implied action in these phrases here because of what they are, but the main command is yet to come. This is just creating a context around the command that might either help us to obey it or kind of thwart our attempts to obey it. This is setting up the, the context. If you don't buckle up your mind, and so instead you end up not sober-minded, to keep using the metaphorical language there, you may end up drunk on power or money or significance, the identity you hope to find in your career, either that you have found or that you hope to find. You might be under the influence of whatever it is your friends say. Whatever it is the television tells you is appropriate. You might be influenced by that, driven along by it, by public opinion. And that's then where your hope would be set. And it would be very disappointing to you because all that falls. All that's empty. It doesn't really matter and it can't deliver. And, and if you're under the influence of these things out here, what, even good things, if, if they're what's controlling you and driving you, you're going to end up walking in a lie and living for a mirage. Something that is there, but it's not, actually. Because you just drifted along, carried by something, until you found out, woo, where's life? How many Christians drift? What about you? I'm not saying how many Christians don't know what's true. How many Christians don't understand? How many Christians drift? We're not to drift, we are to be deliberate, being sober-minded, ready to get to work and alert up here, alert in here, aware of what's true and of the opposing schemes of how the world's at work all around. Deliberate. And therefore then in that state, here's the command. Set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. At the revelation of Jesus the Christ, the coming deliverer king. It's been mentioned before already in verses 5 and 7. He will be revealed from heaven one day, the last time. And he will come, and when he comes, grace will be brought to you by him. He will bring it. It's not just going to happen. He will bring grace to you. This is not the grace that we already experience. We, 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 we are objects of amazing grace already. We have been saved by the undeserved favor of God. We stand every single moment in the favor of God such that he looks upon you with a smile and his hand is for you, not against you. That is amazing grace. That is a glory. We are objects of grace now, and though we do not now see him, we believe all of this and believe that Jesus is for us, and we therefore rejoice in him. That is awesome. But guys, there's a moment coming when he comes, and surely to see him is better than to not see him. 
There's a moment coming when we will see him. And the grace that he brings to us then, he is going to bring to you the grace of face-to-face communion with himself. He's going to bring to you the grace of this inheritance that we've seen already. The, The reality of a people in a place that is finally made right, where we commune with God as the king he was made to be, and we experience the blessings of shalom. That grace is coming to you. He will bring it. Hope in that living hope. That's the command. Because it really is real and it really is glorious. And it's coming. This is a full hope that is not weak. It resists doubts raised by trials and disappointments. Hope fully in this hope, he's saying. Hope completely in it. Don't don't look away from it and, and share your hopes, but there, because that's a hope that will not fail, that will not disappoint. Do you, Christian, do, do you find yourself sometime in some way worried, intimidated maybe, you look out, maybe you look out, you read the newspaper, or you, you turn on the television, you look out at the world, or maybe you don't do any of that, you just look at your own personal life, and you find yourself unsettled. I'm saying this so broadly because I, I think we all can find some spot there where, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm there, I've been there. Okay, grab a hold of that. I don't know what the threat is or what the concern is, what, what the fear is. When some way you become unstable, what do you do there? Don't run for ice cream. Don't call your friend. Buckle up your mind. And sober-minded then, sober-minded, think, what is really most important? What is most true? What, what dominates all this? And you can look at whichever way you want to look at it. What's at the foundation here? What supersedes? What, what is? Who is? What's reality? Well, the reality is I just got the news about. The reality is I just saw in the news about yeah, what, over that or under that, what's true? You've got to grab yourself. You've got to buckle up. What's true? What's most important? What's, what's true and most important and real is that I am in Christ. And he reigns. And he is coming. He is. He is. And when he comes, he will set this, that, all of it right. That is true. That does not come natural to you, Christian. Because you're human. It does not come natural. You've got to grab that. When you face death, the death of a loved one or your own death, you do think every now and then about your own death, don't you? I hope. 
because that's coming too. That, that's real. Don't think about it all the time, but think about it some of the time. You're going to die, and everyone you know is going to die. And when you think about death, when, what do you do then? Don't run for ice cream. Don't call your friend. Don't change the channel. Look at it. And buckle up your mind and sober-mindedly think, what is true here? See, this is a hope. This is a hope that is made out of, it's bulletproof. This is a hope that's robust because you come to the end of that, you come to the, you think about your own death and you come to the end of this and say, what's true? <laughs> I'm in Christ and he reigns and he's coming for me, period. That's what's true. That's what's glorious. That is hope. You can't control anything else anywhere else except for that. But that doesn't come natural to you, Christian. You've got to grab that. You've got to buckle up your mind and think about that. What comes naturally is fear and disappointment and sorrow, the thoughts about all that you're going to miss when you die or when he dies or she dies. This is a command about stable hope for the life of an exile who feels very unstable, threatened, and is tempted to do anything to fit in. This is a command about obedience when it's hard, for perseverance when life is really desperately disappointing or overwhelming. In those situations, you need, we all need, hope. So where's your hope? The first command of the book is read verses 1 through 12 and hope in that. And you will be good. You'll be fine. But that doesn't come automatically. We've got to take ourselves in hand, gird up the loins of your mind, and then sober-minded, set your hope in the hope. Set your hope in the hope. It'll prepare you for all the challenges that arise and all the questions that are going to come. Be ready for them about belittling you and, and declaring you a failure in Christ insufficient. That's, that's going to happen constantly. So be ready for that and hope in the hope. See, I, I love, I, I love, I love this verse. I love this book. I love this verse. This is so real and so helpful. Because what you get out of the other end of this command is not something like, I gotta obey God. What you get out of the other end is, oh, thank goodness. Thank goodness. Thank goodness. There's a hope, and I can hope in it and live hope-filled, hopeful. Christians are called to be diligent in setting their hope in heaven. That's the first point. Diligent and deliberate. Here's the second one, then. 
Christians are called to the privilege of being holy like God. Christians are called to the privilege of being holy like God. Verse 14 begins, As obedient children, which is a description of all Christians, it's a statement about our identity more than it is about our behavior, though of course the two are connected. But this is not saying like because you obey day by day by day, you're obedient children. It's saying, if you recall, back in verse 2, God chose you to be obedient to Jesus. That's, that's about to hear the gospel call, repent and trust me, and to obey that call. And then you're sprinkled with the blood sealed in the covenant. So the call's gone forth. You've been obedient to it. You've trusted Christ like he commanded. So you are obedient children. It's your identity. Then something follows. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. Passions are not quite the same as emotions. Passions are impulses or drives, some sort of a strong, deeply gripping pull or attraction or draw. It can be emotional, but it's not just that. And, and the way that we human beings are designed, just think, kind of think about how humans work, we are moved by passions. We just are. We're ruled by what we deeply regard as good and desirable and lovely and beautiful and therefore admirable enough to live for and pursue, chase. That just is. That's how God made us. And if, as an aside, you think about why did God make us like that? Well, what's the most beautiful, good, attractive, desirable thing there is? God. And so God is, and so God put something in us that when we see clearly, we want. That's how we are. That's good and fine. Gigantic problem, though. When we see clearly, we don't. We don't see clearly. The former life that every Christian used to walk in and which all who are not Christians yet still walk in is a life that verse 14 describes as our former ignorance. End of the verse. That's not intellectual ignorance. It's spiritual ignorance. A spiritual blindness or hardness of heart heart that's dead to God and does not, cannot accurately understand God, God's world, God's values, God's goals, does not, cannot actually then accurately evaluate what is valuable and what is beautiful and what is good and what is lovely, blinded by sin, trapped in the darkness of sin's bondage, we were spiritually morally ignorant. We did not know God. And in the world, the world still does not know God. We were there. Were. That was our former ignorance, he says. And the passions that arose in us in that state were for sure, of course, naturally, off the mark. They're wrong. 
This is the plate. I really think about it. This is the plate that's also the tragedy. And, and we should think about it like this. It's the plight and it's the tragedy. It's, it's the real sorrow of the non-Christian existence. Sometimes we Christians forget this and we get kind of frustrated or angry or worse, combative or, or confrontational or accusatory when, when we bump into other folks who, who disagree with us and don't believe and we say, ah, and we, we get frustrated and we forget the plight We see something the world does not. We used to be there. And we should look at people and say that, that the world is, is full of those who have rejected the only hope that there is, the God of the Bible. And where that leaves people is frantically searching for life driven by mistaken passions wandering in the desert looking for water. That's how we should think of people in the world. And if I'm talking about you right now, if, if you're hearing this and you're thinking, about, I'm one of the people in the world, I'm kind of insulted. I don't mean to be insulting, but I have to say this because it's true. You do not know God. You may know about God, but you do not know God. And that means that you do not understand the world and what's actually going on in it and who you are and who you're made to be. The really, really, really good news with that, though, is that God loves to help people who humbly ask him, who are you? Show me. So I invite you, and I, I hope that in my manner I have not been insulting or certainly hope to have not been arrogant about this. Everything that, that I say about a Christian is by grace and grace alone, like we sang this morning. There's nothing that's superior in me by grace and grace alone. God did it, and God would do it for you just the same. He invites people to come and ask him, who are you? Show me. I want to know. I need to know. That used to be us. It is by the grace of God only that it is former for us. And the point here is that it must remain former for us. Christian, you are a child of God now. We are the people of God now with a new nature in us. And we are not to try to put on those old clothes again. We are not to allow our lives to be conformed to the sinful passions of the old, broken, fallen life that we used to live in and walk in. Do not be conformed to that. It's probably worth pausing right here for a moment and hovering over this for a second to allow you to ask yourself for a moment, is there anything that you need to repent of here? Christian. We all sin, and so we all could find something that we need to repent of, but I'm asking, 
along the lines of do not be conformed. I'm not asking, did you sin in some way? I'm asking, are you sinning? See the difference? A pattern that deviates is different than a pattern. See that? Do not be conformed to former passions. Look at your life. Is there something that you need to say no to and turn from, to repent? Maybe repentance is in order. There is nothing in our lives that should be conformed to our former lives. The passions that drove us when we walked ignorant, spiritually speaking. Instead, verse 15, we are to live like what we are. Since the Holy One called us, and the language here, some of our translations are more clear on this than others, the language here is less God is holy and more the Holy One. It's like giving him a name, the Holy One, which adds a little bit more oomph to it. That's how he's making himself known. I'm the Holy One. He is the Holy One, distinct and set apart from all that is earthly and fallen and common. That's what holy means, distinct, set apart from, different. Which means, if you, if you see it in relation to all that's here, it means that he is set apart. He is pure and good and righteous and just. He is love and grace and mercy. All of that with no darkness at all in it. None. No sin. So completely unlike what sinful humankind is, he is the Holy One. And in a real way, that is what is so desirable about him. And about being with him forever. It, it is easy to think of holy, and I, I think that sometimes we use this word, and particularly if what's in your mind is the, is the, the phrase holier than thou. We use this word, and it becomes kind of like, eh, off-putting. Like for people who button the top button and stand like this and live right. I don't want to be so stiff. I don't want to be that so narrow and and there's no color and it's like just simple and no joy and it's exactly the opposite that's what some of the world wants you to think the power that is alive in the world the enemy of the holy one wants you to think like that about holiness oh so distasteful I guess if I have to, that doesn't come from God. That comes from the enemy of the Holy One. He wants you to think that's off-putting and to be, to be put off by that. It is, the, it is the opposite. God is holy, and he relates to us 
as holy. He's the one who calls us near into no darkness at all, in which there is no twisting and no marring and no confusion, a relationship that is nothing about brokenness, that has no corruption in it. It is a love that he calls us into, a love that he exudes from himself that is right and strong and good, faithful, never ends. He is full of wisdom that is pure and so incredibly insightful and, and aims at delight and always champions good and puts everything together in marvelously complex ways and is mighty enough to bring it all about. He is holy. He made everything that is, and he called Moses to himself the burning bush that was not consumed. And Moses stood there and thought, what is that? And God said as the stones rolled away, you're on holy ground. That is, it is remarkably deeply gripping and stimulating. It is not deadening and dulling. It is alive. It is not, it is not distasteful. It is beautiful. God is holy, 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 good, and ours. Sweet and joyous. It is the tears of the fall wiped away in the holiness of God and replaced with a beauty and a song that never ends. That's what holiness is. It is heaven. It is glory. No fallenness and no darkness and no sin and no death and no, no crying. That's who he is. And he's the one who called you and drew you to himself out from the lost and fallen world, made you his child, and became by adoption your father, your dad. So be holy in all your conduct. Not a good, solid 65% of the time. Be holy in all your conduct. That's who he is. That's what's appropriate. In everything, everywhere, all the time, in all that we do and say and think and want and long for, however we conduct ourselves, Christian, be holy. which verse 16 repeats, quoting the Old Testament, since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. God's command to his people repeatedly in the Old Testament, first to the priests in particular who would be representing him. We are a kingdom of priests. Peter's going to tell us we represent him. Holiness in us is rooted in the nature of God himself. He's the holy one. We are his people. He's called us out to be like him. You shall be holy. I am And I called you to myself to be holy like me. That's the command. Christian, we are to strive after a life like this, which is not some sterile, strict, stiff life of restricted religiosity. It's a life without darkness, with no twisting and no marring and no corruption. It's the life of life. It's the life of love that is righteous as God defines it. Love that is strong and faithful and pure where we know God and know God's will and obey it. Where we give ourselves loving our neighbors and praying for those who persecute us and live as his representatives, kind to all because he is kind to all. Able to give our lives away because he is enough for us. That's what we're called to 
that kind of a community is awesome. It would be awesome to be a part of that. One day you will be when he comes. But he calls us to it now. Imaging God to each other and to others around him, holy like he is holy. Are you tired of sin? Are, are you tired of the fall and brokenness and how sin messes up the world and everybody you've ever known in it and how it soils your own soul constantly? I mean, look at your own soul. Are you tired of the sins that you do? Yes. But are you tired of the weight of having to think about not sinning? Are you, are you tired of being broken? Of all the messed up twists and turns in our own hearts, let alone out there. You weary of that? and you're longing for holiness. Well, only one person ever was, of course. Only one person was holy in all of his conduct, and yet was cursed and crucified as if he was a sinner. We know that. that. That's at the heart of the gospel. That, that's, the, that's the core of the gospel message. Jesus is the holy one. He's the only one who's holy. And was cursed and crucified as if he was a sinner. We know this, but to say it in this context puts a little spin on the death and the resurrection of Jesus. Think about it like this. He wasn't just crucified and raised so as to provide forgiveness for your sin and bring you into fellowship with God. Yes, that. But I'm going to talk about it in a slightly different way. Same thing, but slightly different way. He was crucified and raised so you could be holy. All that God is, the Holy One, Jesus came and was crucified and raised to make you holy in standing so that you could come stand in the presence of, you could be called out separate from the world and come stand in the presence of the Holy One and not be destroyed. He's holy and so are you in Christ. And so you can commune with the Holy One and you can enjoy His holiness now. We can sing the song about only the Holy One and that's actually true of you now. You can sing about that now. And one day you will know it face to face when He comes. He died to make you holy and standing and Christ won for you daily holiness. He forgives you of your sin, yes. And he makes you standing holy, yes. But he also says, there's the command to be holy. And what I win for you is the ability to be holy and increasingly holy and increasingly holy day by day by day right now. Now, this only matters if you care about being holy. 
I hope you do. I hope you do. But if you do, this is then sweet to consider. All, all of your conduct in every moment of life, that, that's what he's talking about, as you live, you can live set apart, distinct. You're right there in some moment in life where, where, the, where your conduct is happening in a place. You're, you're in a place with a person. You're actually really talking to a person about something really important at work or you're at school or in the park. You're, you're at the playground. You're a mom with kids. You're at the playground, and a woman that you don't know is there sitting also on the bench next to you as you watch your kids play, and you're really talking to her about something real, really. You're there conducting yourself, but you're conducting yourself, you are able to conduct yourself set apart as if you're not actually sitting on that bench, but you're standing somewhere else, distinct. You really are fully there talking, but you are able to talk and live in this conversation as if you are not spiritually ignorant. But like you actually know God and commune with him and understand what's going on in the world and understand her better than she understands her. You understand her better than she understands her. You live there. You talk there. You engage. You, you hear her while in your mind actually believing the commands of God and the promises of God, seeing what is good and beautiful and valuable, and then you do indeed love and value and admire them. You bank your life on them. You are living distinct from this moment, living holy, and therefore you will not be drawn into whatever it is that she advises you, but can actually give to her counsel that is good and right for her blessing. You can live there in that moment. Not in that moment. Set apart, holy. Living in the world, but not of the world. Living right there on the park bench as if the park is not your home, but heaven is. What am I talking about there? Well, what I tried to do just now is tried to Skip quickly back through verses 14 and 13. They're connected. All this is connected. You sit there talking to a random person that you just met. And if you will buckle up your mind and think straight, your life, your heart, and your words will not be conformed to the former passions that you used to walk in. But it'll be about someone different and something different and you won't be drawn into sin, but will actually be salt that can season and draw her towards the living one. You can live holy there in that moment on the park bench. Or when you're at home in your apartment all by yourself on your couch and running through your mind the really disappointing news that you just heard. weighing out the seriousness and feeling despondency kind of running towards you. Because it wasn't good news. It wasn't. 
You feel it coming to you, and you can, in that moment, talk to yourself like the psalmist does, for example, in Psalm 42, 43. And you can say to yourself, Self, why so downcast, O my soul? You hear him buckle up his mind there? Why, why so downcast, O my soul? Put your hope in God. He continues, put your hope in God. For I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. He talks to himself, he preaches to himself something of God and something of his future. And he, he kind of grabs a hold of where he's tending to drift it's as if he takes verses 1 through 12 and reads them back to himself. But of course, he doesn't take verses 1 through 12 because he doesn't have them. Only you do. It's as if the Holy Spirit preaches these verses into his heart. But that's not what happened because you alone have the Holy Spirit to preach these verses into your heart. Christ won for you the privilege of having these scriptures and the privilege of having the Holy Spirit who could take these scriptures, the sword of the Spirit, and into your heart press great life-giving truth and make you distinct from the world, holy, separate. Not for your rigidity and for your, your conformity, but for your life and for your joy and for your hope when you feel despondency coming at you. The ability to say no and this is true. And I have a hope that's not going anywhere. And to stand up looking at that news that was not good. And say, blessed be the name of the Lord, because what most matters is that I'm in Christ and he's coming for me. That ain't how the world lives. But it is how we live. Be holy, like the Holy One. And because you can't, He helps you. He made you holy in Christ and He's making you holy in Christ day by day by day. God's command to you and His privileged provision for you, a standing before Him and a daily status that you can walk in by the power of the Spirit, one for you in Christ. Let me pray. Father, you are kind. We are your children by grace and grace alone. We live in a world that sustains us by grace and grace alone. We have your spirit to walk with you now wholly by grace and grace alone. We have a future that is secure by grace and grace alone. You are so kind. Will you now empower us, your people, to put our hope in you and to walk wholly after you? Build your church, Lord, to the honor of your name and for our good. Thank you. Amen.